Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your NBN host, Lavinia Stan. We are talking today with Dr. Cynthia Horn, Professor of Political Science at Western Washington University. Dr. Horn is a world-recognized scholar with a solid record of research on transitional justice in Central and Eastern Europe and other regions of the world. Prior to joining the Political Science Department at Western Washington University in 2006, Cynthia taught at Seton Hall University's School of Diplomacy and International Relations. She was a visiting scholar at the University of Bucharest in Romania, the Center for the Study of Democracy in Bulgaria, the Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies in the Netherlands, and the Bellagio Center in Italy. Cynthia completed her PhD at the University of Washington and previously, while a student at Georgetown University, she worked at NASA in their International Relations Division on U.S.-Russian joint uh, uh, space uh, uh, activities. Cynthia's research interests include transitional justice, but also political economy and post-Soviet politics and economics. Dr. Horn is the author of numerous articles and book chapters, as well as three books. The most recent one, Transitional Justice and the Former Soviet Union, Reviewing the Past, Looking Towards the Future, was published with Cambridge University Press in 2018. Building Trust and Democracy, Transitional Justice in Post-Communist Countries was published with Oxford University Press in 2017 and will be the topic of our discussion today. And uh, her other book, Post-Communist Economies and Western Trade Discrimination, was published uh, with uh, Paul Grave Macmillan in 2006. Transitional Justice in... um, Building building Trust and Democracy, Transitional Justice in Post-Communist Countries, has gained uh, quite a following among scholars and practitioners uh, alike and has been applauded as a very solid uh, piece of research. As the title suggests, the book links transitional justice and trust in several um, uh, post-communist countries. Dr. Horn, thank you for accepting this interview. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I have to ask, um, how did you come to work with NASA? In which capacity and why? I believe you are the only transitional justice scholar that I know who ever looked into the stars. Uh, What did you learn from that experience? (laughs) This is such a funny question. No one has ever asked me about this. So thank you. And uh, I let's see if I can link it to transitional justice. 
So while I was at Georgetown, I was pursuing a professional master's degree in diplomacy and international relations. And my focus was Russia, because at that time, the Soviet Union had just collapsed, and uh, Eastern Europe. So I spent a year working as a Russian desk officer at the NASA headquarters. In particular, the U.S. and Russia had a number of joint space activities in remote sensing along with the Mir space station. And so I was in charge of working on the official interactions between the U.S. delegation and the Russian delegation on some of these activities. And in particular... One of them revolved around the Mir space station. Do you remember that one? I'm not sure I do, but uh, I'm I'm sure that you will offer uh, details for our listeners. Well, the, the, the Mir space station was an opportunity to support astronauts from 12 different countries. So it really was an olive branch, a way to have international diplomacy in space. However, there's actually something quite delicious about this. Mir, the the word mir in Russian has two meanings. One of the meanings is peace. So that sounds very welcoming. But the second meaning is world. And so like many Russian terms, it could lead to significant misunderstanding in the post-Cold War period. Did that mean Russia was dominating the world? Or did that mean that Russia was bringing peace to the world? It was anyone's guess. And so you would see this kind of misunderstanding foreshadowing uh, the post-Cold War U.S. Russia interactions, including today. So after NASA, I worked in international financial sector restructuring during the communist transitions, thinking about the challenges of economic, political, and social changes in transitional societies. And so I was able to take those policy lessons, both the misunderstandings and the need for diplomacy from NASA, and the work in international financial sector changes, to think about transitional questions, right? Transitions are moments of opportunity and change, with all the ups and downs associated with it. Transitional justice is situated in those moments of opportunity and flux. People have different ideas about what the nature of the change should look like. They have different feelings about those changes as well. What is best or what is uh, is not consistent with the norms and values of a society. Moreover, people are differentially impacted by the changes in a transition, economically, socially, or politically. And we see all of these manifestations in the field of transitional justice as well. So this policy work really has informed my thinking about transitional changes, but now in the venue of justice. Thank you very much. Well, I think this is a great introduction into the 
into the topic uh, of uh, today's um, uh, interview about your 2017 book. Now, before talking about the particulars of that book, let's explain the basics so that our audience understands where we are coming from. How are we to understand transitional justice? What does it mean? This is a great question because as many of you know who engage the literature on transitional justice, it's actually very contentious how to define it. In my book, I take as a starting point Neil Kritz's uh, Transitional Justice Volumes from 1995, which were really the starting point as we were thinking about a field of transitional justice, because we couldn't even call it a field in the early 1990s. So Kritz defines transitional justice extremely basically. He suggests transitional justice is the way a state and society confront wrongdoings in the past with the goal of obtaining some combination of truth, justice, rule of law, and durable peace. So this is Kritz's thinking. And I really like this broad definition. It doesn't put too many descriptors on who is doing the redressing or how issues are redressed. It doesn't necessarily tell us what the direction of the transition needs to look like. It's a broad umbrella category. There are so many possibilities with this definition for truth-telling, redress, accountability, memory, and reform under that umbrella. So I like it because it doesn't overly uh, limit the scope or the direction. Now that said, there are other definitions that are a little narrower. Uh, the United Nations which, of course, is a flagship global institution directing transitional justice, uh, both programs and discourse. It defines transitional justice as, quote, an approach to systematic or massive violations of human rights that both provide redress to victims and create or enhance opportunities for the transformation of the political systems, conflicts, and other conditions that may have been at the root of the abuses. The International Center for Transitional Justice similarly describes this focus on massive human rights violations and a work to reform and build democratic institutions. Those are part of the very definition. Now, I look at these, and it's not that I'm opposed to thinking about democracy as a potential end goal or uh, massive and systematic human rights violations. But I think that when you embed directionality into the reforms, you delimit uh, maybe too much the nature of the transition. And you and I know that there's a lot of debate. Are they, does it have to be moving towards democracy? I personally don't think so in my own definition, so I don't embrace that. Also, when I think about massive and systematic human rights violations, there are a host of atrocities that might not rise to the level of massive 
or systematic, but we still would like redress, truth-telling, and accountability for them. So here, I'm a bit hesitant to weigh in on debates on what is transitional justice. I think it's much broader. And so my work embraces Critz's approach. We're going to engage in methods to redress wrongdoings in the past. And I'll leave it at that. And this is a, a, a mini course in transitional justice, transitional justice 101. <laughs> and uh, actually, I will uh, assign it to my students uh, to, uh, to listen to you on all these definitions and what transitional justice means. Now, um, how how did you become interested in this topic of transitional justice? And when exactly? Uh, immediately after NASA or a, bit, a little bit later? I slowly came to the topic after I was looking at economic and political reforms in the region. And I will credit Margaret Levy, one of my former advisors, who said who, who she and I worked on trust and trust building. So I had significant scholarly footprint on trust and trust building. And Janusz Kornai and Susan Rose Ackerman were working on a project on building trust in transition at Budapest Collegium. And I was fortunate enough to be part of that enterprise where we were thinking about how to repair post-communist societies. Uh, we will talk some about what it means to think about trust and trust building and the significant institutional and societal distrust created by the legacies of communism. So I started out thinking about trust and trust building. And then the question became, what do lustration laws, public accountability mechanisms, public disclosures of the past, how do they build trust or do they build trust? And that's, we'll sort of get to that later in our discussion in the post-communist region. So uh, Margaret Levy, Janos Kornai, and Susan Rose Ackerman were uh, my forays into this question of transitional justice and trust. And I've never looked back. Your book starts uh, with a powerful statement. You write, it has become both a normative expectation as well as a practical policy recommendation that states should engage in context-specific transitional justice measures to repair the state and society following a conflict or an authoritarian transition. Do we live in an era of reckoning? Is transitional justice the norm for state and non-state actors today? What do you think? This is such a loaded question. I, I would say that starting in the late 1980s and early 1990s, we started to see a, an actual watershed moment, a sea change in approaches to justice. The end of the Cold War left space for reckoning that we didn't have before. We started to see the creation of international tribunals addressing atrocities in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. We saw the codification of the Rome Statute and the creation of the International Criminal Court. 
the first of its kind, such an ambitious attempt to end impunity for atrocity crimes and hold individuals responsible for crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide. These early changes were largely top-down. But then we started to see norm-driven changes, both from the top and the bottom. Not just the United Nations or international institutions calling for accountability, but civil society groups and international NGOs pressing reluctant states to address crimes of the past. We saw all the countries in Central and Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, calling for the opening of the secret police files, for reckoning, for uh, reparations, for the harms that had been done. So in this way, we, uh, I think that Lutz and Sicking's observation that the world was actually experiencing a justice cascade with global calls for justice, not just regional calls, calls to end impunity that weren't just Western or top down, but from all parts of the globe. We started to see this these calls resonating with each other. And as they resonated, I think they became formalized, systematized, and institutionalized, creating an expectation that states should address crimes of the past, that they will address crimes of the past. And in the sense of the creation of the ICC and other international agencies documenting these crimes, that they will or others will do it for them. So in that sense, I think we actually do see a sea change over the past few decades that there is an expectation. Now, as we're going to talk about enforcement, it's a problem. But the enforcement that is a problem or states saying, I don't want to engage, they're getting global pushback from all sectors, local, national, and international. So things have changed. We're not there yet, but I would suggest that the global system expects reckoning for crimes of the past. What do you think? I uh, completely agree. And I think you uh, presented all these um, ideas uh, very eloquently. Uh, Dr. Horn, as you mentioned, after a violent conflict or the end of a dictatorship, citizens are very divided and very distrustful of each other and of the government. In your book, how do you link transitional justice to trust? What is its main argument? Well, the argument is actually kind of hydra-headed, so I'm going to wade into it a little bit here. The book was actually motivated by a simple research question. How does transitional justice affect trust? You might say, well, that sounds too simplistic. But when I started this project, there was little cross-national empirical work on this question. We were operating on so many assumptions that it built trust or it undermined trust. 
usually from single case studies, which were the norm when we started thinking about transitional justice studies in the um, late 1990s, early 2000s. And there were so many assumptions in the literature, especially the post-communist literature, on the problems with measures. Now, I will um, say that part of the reason there were so many debates was that lustration, which was the primary form of addressing the crimes of the communist past, had embedded in it problems. But when authors looked at revelations from crimes and atrocities committed as documented in the secret police files, they just said, wow, if you reveal betrayals, you will create more distrust. Or if you look at the types of transitional justice, they were caught in cycles of political manipulation. Political parties promoted them or rejected them for their own political advantage. So how could they build trust? Or perhaps there are due process violations embedded in these kinds of measures. If you are not following strict rule of law practices, how could you promote trust? Or if you're focused too much on the past, you're not going to focus on reforms for the future. So you're not going to build trust. So we had all of these assumptions operating as false assertions about trust building when I started out. Other scholars took almost a Pollyanna approach to transitional justice. It would be an elixir. It will solve all your problems. It will promote trust. It will promote democracy. It will, it will reduce corruption. It will shed light on the communist past and truth-telling will bring everyone together. So when I started uh, with this project, wading into all of these assertions, my simple question, does transitional justice in this context support trust, was actually empirically really slim. So I set out to ask, does transitional justice support trust and under what conditions? Because it's not going to be an all or nothing. Now that said, the primary mechanism of transitional justice that I look at in this book is lustration. And for those people who aren't familiar with this fantastically interesting form of transitional justice, it's a kind of personnel vetting. You screen the backgrounds of certain public and some quasi-public slash private officials to examine evidence of collaboration with the former secret police, or perhaps you worked for the secret police or perhaps you were a high-ranking former communist official, the consequences for this type of previous regime involvement could be removal from office or positions in a full-on employment vetting, could be removal if you were only lying about that previous past collaboration, or could simply be public revelation of that regime complicity as a kind of shaming to get you to self-recuse from consideration for positions. So when I started the project, I thought, okay, let's take a look at 
the variation across the region in approaches to lustration and truth-telling in the form of truth commissions and historical memory, and ascertain if and how these transitional justice mechanisms affected trust, and we'll talk some about what that means. So to preview the findings, it was quite the mixed bag. Under certain conditions, it was trust building. In others, no effect. In still others, trust uh, undermining. So I will just preview that and then we'll, we can kind of go through some of the scope of the book. But um, the findings resulted in some empirically unexpected revelations of their own. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, The title of the book suggests you will be looking at trust and democracy as big goals for post-authoritarian transitions. What other goals are examined in the book? And do they necessarily fit together or are there differences in the ability of transitional justice to advance certain goals? Yes, so I took a big approach to this, which is why it took so long to write this book and research it. I won't reveal to everyone how long it took. It's almost an embarrassment. But uh, when I looked at trust, I disaggregated what it means to think about trust. So trust in government, and this is drawing on the trust literature, which I won't go into too much detail because that is a whole separate podcast about what is trust. But we know that trust in government, in individuals' propensity to think a government holistically is trustworthy, that looks different than trust in a political institution, political parties, or the judiciary, or the parliament, or the police, those narrower political institutions have a different trust mechanism. So I looked at certain kinds of political trust in institutions, broad political trust in the government, and then social trust, which is very different from political trust, It could be trust in others, what we tend to think of as interpersonal trust. How much do I trust you? How much do you trust me Uh, as neighbors, colleagues, or strangers? And trust in social institutions, the kind of trust Robert Putnam likes to think about, your bowling league, your church, your union, your club. So those are narrower, defined institutions. So I disaggregated trust, and what I found, as we will talk about, was that different objects of trust behave differently to these revelations. I also looked at democracy as the big-ticket item. Does transitional justice support democratization in this region? I looked at corruption because that is one of the expected goals. Transitional justice measures can help reduce corruption. I looked at governance. I also looked at a host of other smaller factors, um, including but not limited to uh, inequality, economic growth and development. 
So I try to think about the trade-offs because what we find is that you might be uh, supporting trust building in some capacities, but undermining trust building in others. So to give a sense of the findings, in general, transitional justice measures supported political trust. This was a revelation. This was such great news, because if it didn't, what's the point of all this transitional justice? However, it didn't support political trust uniformly. Trust in political parties was not well supported by transitional justice. Kind of the intuition that we have, that political parties manipulate transitional justice measures sometimes inappropriately, and that makes citizens feel uncomfortable. They don't, it doesn't make them feel like political parties are more trustworthy as a result of these exercises. However, when you vet, when you review the, the uh, credibility and integrity of the judiciary and the police, it does build their trustworthiness, and that makes them more effective. Government, though, the large, broad understanding of government, it wasn't directly affected by these measures. Now, that said, all kinds of factors go into perceptions of government trust. So allegations or assumptions that trust would, or that transitional justice would directly make government better, eh, I mean, we were out on a limb in the transitional justice community to make that elixir statement. However, government effectiveness was, and it was very robust. And isn't that what we're trying to do? To make governments work better, be more effective? And so, although we didn't see direct connections between transitional justice and trust in government, it made the judiciary more trustworthy, the police more trustworthy, parliament more trustworthy, and the government more effective. And in my view, that's a win. Now, social trust was much more complicated, though. We saw that when you revealed the collaborator past of your church, your union, your club, it made people trust those institutions less. That was our intuition all along. Right, that you thought the church had your back. Professor Stan is the best person to tell us about this. But when it was revealed that the church was actually spying on you and revealing your confessions to the secret police, you don't feel good about those social institutions in the post-communist period. However, we also thought that if I heard that my neighbor, my friend, my lover was spying on me, that it would make me less trusting overall. But we didn't actually see that. The relationships were much more diffused. Um, so we have clear, robust relationships with political trust, some negative relationships with social trust. So then the question is, what about the big ticket item democracy? Yes. Clear, consistent, robust relationships. 
more transitional justice, more democracy. Now, one of the things that we're going to talk about is sort of differentiating in, uh, across the cases. But I will preview that it wasn't just more transitional justice, more democracy. It was more punitive transitional justice, more democracy. And that was perhaps not something that we necessarily expected in the literature. So anyway, did I look at a bunch of outcomes? I did. And not all outcomes were affected the same way by the same transitional justice measure. So it gets us asking, what happens if I enact a certain kind of transitional justice and some of the effects are positive, some of the effects are negative, and some of the effects are neutral? How do I weigh the costs and benefits? Your book captures a range of country cases, but not all post-communist states. How did you decide on the cases that you included for this analysis? And what did the different cases suggest about the benefits of transitional justice measures? Case selection is always a tricky one. Uh, what I tried to do was, uh, was have variation on the type of transitional justice. It wasn't just, did you have transitional justice or didn't you have transitional justice? Because as Dr. Stan knows, as an expert of transitional justice in this region, sometimes the measures are passed but never implemented. Sometimes the measures are wide. Sometimes the measures are narrow. Sometimes they're punitive. Sometimes they're voluntary. So what I tried to do was select cases that would give me variation on the transitional justice typology I developed for this project. So I had cases that were wide and punitive or compulsory, cases that took a narrow approach to transitional justice, largely voluntary. I had cases that were informal, where states had their transitional justice programs truncated, but they still publicly disclosed and vetted uh, files. And I had cases where transitional justice was on the docket and parliaments actively voted against it or banned procedures. So we had the presence and absence of transitional justice. I also had variation in the levels of economic development, of the strength of civil society, of the strength of the political opposition, of the timing. Did you have measures enacted early? Did you have measures enacted late? Uh, did you join the EU? Did you not join the EU? So uh, I tried to grab variation in the conditions that were associated with democratization or corruption in these countries. In this way, I ended up with 12 countries and I looked at 15 years. So I tried to have a long enough window of time to see if the changes were happening. I looked at a whole bunch of control variables to try to tease out, did we really see it was transitional justice or was it some other embedded factor that affects trust or democracy? 
Um, and then I had picked four countries, in this case, Poland and Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria, to do a deep dive in comparative case studies with some interviews and field work to look at countries that had imperfect transitional justice. Uh, we have a lot of early scholarship on the perfect cases. This is what it looks like in the Czech Republic that we love to talk about, and it had beneficial outcomes. Well, what happens if your measures are imperfect, if they're short, if they're delayed, if they're politicized? Do they still yield beneficial outcomes? Maybe not perfect outcomes, but do we see benefits? So, uh, and FYI, we do. We do see benefits. So the cases were designed to explore the imperfect examples, which is the real world, and to give us a sense, if you do more and more punitive, do you see bigger outcomes, bigger positive outcomes? And if you do imperfect measures, do you undermine outcomes? So the uh, that takeaway message is no. Do transitional justice, even imperfectly, because it's better than nothing. So, uh, in a way, to recap for our listeners, we have four countries with imperfect transitional justice programs, Poland, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. To these, you added eight other countries, which are... The Czech Republic, Estonia, and Latvia, which were examples of wide and compulsory measures. In terms of narrow and voluntary measures, I looked at Poland, Hungary, and Lithuania. In terms of informal lustration measures, imperfect, I have Romania, Bulgaria, and Slovakia. And in terms of countries that had non-existent during this time period, so they enacted it or passed it or talked about it, I had Albania, Russia, and Ukraine. So as you see, there's a lot of variation in each of the categories, which thank goodness there was, right? If the example of the best was all the Baltics, then it would be a Baltic issue. It wouldn't be a transitional justice issue. So the quantitative component of my project, I have a lot of quantitative analyses so that I have these controls, looked at all of these 12 countries. And the thick comparison with the interviews were these four specific cases. Uh, so hopefully people who are interested in Uh, Eastern Europe broadly could find some country or some issue that piques their curiosity. I'm sure they, they will do. Um, you engage questions about the timing of transitional justice measures throughout the book and uh, uh, in, uh, in your um, uh, research since then, but um, let's talk about the book now. Did the timing of reforms affect their ability to support these transitions? What does this suggest about very delayed transitional justice measures? Timing was perhaps the most unexpected finding for, for me and really got me thinking about our assumptions. Late and delayed measures were beneficial 
for longer than uh, I thought, the longer than the literature expects. This went against assumptions, not just by scholars, but by policymakers, that early was better and, in fact, best, that late was suboptimal and possibly detrimental. And as uh, Livinia knows, because we have talked about the Council of Europe's expectations many times, that if you haven't done it in a decade, don't start. The window of time for transitional justice um, to be beneficial varied based on the outcomes. So if you are trying to support trust in political institutions, it is better to have earlier measures. They were more time sensitive. Trust in political parties was the most time sensitive. Earlier measures were helpful and later measures appeared politicized. However, trust in the judiciary, trust in the police, they weren't particularly time sensitive. So if you started measures a decade later, 15 years later, even 20 years later, they were still beneficial. Were they as beneficial as measures started early on? Well, that actually is a little tricky. In some cases, delayed measures had better effects than early measures. Now, when you look at this finding, people can say, okay, I get that. The classic example uh, is democracy promotion. Delayed was better than early. Why? Well, at the very start of the transition, everything is in flux. It's very confusing. It's not clear if this is going to be victor's justice. It's not clear whether society wants a truth-telling, trials, a revelation of the files. It's not clear you even have the capacity to manage the information, to do it in a systematized, regularized, trust-building way. So in the case of democracy, measures enacted 15 years after the transition were optimal. That was the sweet spot in terms of the maximum democracy promotion. Society was ready to hear about the past, to reckon with the past, and not make apologies for it, to accept and move forward. Moreover, the window of opportunity was much longer. Even 25 years after the start of the transition, transitional justice measures continue to promote democracy, continue to be associated with more democracy. This was great news. I was doing a cartwheel in the living room when I saw these, these findings because it is very good news for countries that are delayed in their measures. Now, there were many examples in the, um, the project where early was better than late, but late was still good. 
Late wasn't bad. And that is the uh, was one of the durable assumptions we had early on in this. All is not lost if your programs are delayed. And in fact, they could even be better in some cases. Not all, but in some cases, particularly with democracy. So what I will suggest is that um, maybe more work on the conditions under which delayed measures and different kinds of delayed measures promote our transitional justice goals as merited here. If our assumption that only early in the transition has been upended, what other assumptions about timing are waiting to be empirically tested? Isn't this interesting because your finding goes to the to the heart of uh, the concept of transitional justice. Transition in transitional justice makes the assumption that uh, the country is transitioning, is in that interval period between um, a, a bad past uh, of conflict or dictatorship and, uh, you know, with democracy waiting around the corner. But actually, you are telling us that longer periods of time are which might might allow countries to, uh, to, to, to worry about the past, even when they are um, democratic, yeah, or incipient dem- democracies, no longer transitioning um, regimes. Uh, that's also possible, and not on- not only possible, but also useful, very useful for the society and the government for building trust and uh, and um, su- uh, support for the democracy. Yes. And I think this gets to the heart of one of the debates, our central debates in transitional justice. Does it have to be justice during a transition? And I think we've decoupled that or let transitional justice have a broader temporal scope now, but we still often come back to that transition in transitional justice moment when we're thinking about justice concerns. Based on your um, extensive research, can you tell us which transitional justice methods have been implemented more frequently in um, post-communist Central and Eastern Europe? Do some transitional justice methods build more trust in government than others? Um, do courts uh, are courts uh, more beneficial from this point of view than uh, erecting statues, for example? In which countries was transitional justice better able to build these reserves of trust you are talking about? Which countries failed in this respect? This one is a big question, and maybe I'll invite lots of uh, new scholars to to explore some of these topics. So my study did not explore reparations or property restitution, rehabilitation or memorialization. I invite scholars to take a look at some of these and see if we can tease out the direct effects. I was focused on lustration as one of the primary forms of transitional justice across the region. I also looked at truth-telling, truth commissions, uh, which are lesser-used forms of transitional justice uh, as 
Dr. Stan knows because she's written extensively about this. In some ways, lustration was a substitute for truth commissions in the region. But those states that had truth commissions did not have effects on trust building and democracy. And one of my findings was that the symbolic does not have as strong an effect as the punitive. The material had more impact than the symbolic. So I kind of leave that out there as potential avenues for consideration. I'm not trying to suggest that they do not have indirect means of promoting trust, democracy, civil society, um, but it is actually a little harder to tease out the informal and the symbolic uh, from the material and the punitive, which might lead us to discussions about trials. In terms of which countries failed and which countries were we able to have better effects, programs that are, as I keep mentioning, punitive versus those that are truth-telling, punitive had bigger effects which gets us thinking about what should be the balance of, of, of uh, program components in future vetting or personnel reforms because they are often used types of transitional justice in the global system if we're going to remove it, have it travel from the post-communist region. Uh, countries that did not... in. Uh, implement transitional justice suffered. Even countries that had problematic or politicized had benefits from it. So in terms of thinking about which countries uh, were better, uh, had more effective early, wide, punitive, long, had the best effects. Uh, you only fail if you do not implement transitional justice. So I, um, I suggest that we spend a little bit more attention thinking about broader scope of measures, programs that run for longer periods of time, not shorter ones that do not have built-in expiration dates. We think about ones that have fewer amnesties or more punitive components. We explore informal measures for states that have opted out of formal lustration measures, that we explore citizen or civil society alternatives to promote measures in countries that have foreclosed the possibility of, of effective transitional justice. So I think all of these merit continued scholarly engagement. Um, and there's plenty of empirical room for newcomers to this field.
So if you, these are, these are um, uh, new venues for research, but if you were to update the book um, or even redo the book today, what uh, would you add? What would you change in it? I am, as I think the listeners can tell, very excited about time. I, there are a number of countries that have continued to use these measures, even 25 years later. Romania, Bulgaria, Poland come to mind. The Czech Republic, even everyone's favorite, said there is no built-in expiration date. We're going to continue to use it alongside of ordinary justice measures. But my question is, when is too late? How many decades of punitive transitional justice drawing on the communist secret police files is actually useful in building trust? Now, that's a different question than should we engage in memory? Should we remember? Should we record? Should we apologize? But should we punish? Those are kind of different questions. So asking about what, if any, is the end date. When has utility been reached for late public disclosure measures? I would ask that question. I would have maybe a chapter on it. Additionally, I might have a chapter on very delayed measures, third wave lustration programs. They look different. Ukraine's multiple attempts to have lustration, Macedonia, even debates about Croatia and Serbia. Do these extremely delayed measures, measures started 25, 30 years later, do they have a place in solving not just the problems of the past, but the problems of the present? The problems of the past cast a shadow on the problems of the present. And to what extent can we use transitional justice, which we defined early on as redressing wrongdoings in the past, to what extent can we continue to use it to solve lingering problems of the present? I think it would be interesting to have a chapter about this temporal stretch in the third wave lustration programs and see how that does or doesn't depart from these other approaches to lustration we saw in the region. So I guess your future plans will revolve around teasing out the importance of time in uh, transitional justice. I would like to continue to look at that. Also, I'm very excited about competing pasts. And as we, as uh, Professor Stan, who is also very excited about these projects, knows, sometimes a state will choose to redress one past and ignore others. Which period of the past is appropriate for accountability? Why do states skip over some past and select others? So these are all uh, additional temporal questions built into transitional justice inquiry, and, and I'm hoping to continue them in the future. Our guest today, 
at New Books Network was Dr. Cynthia Horn from Western Washington University, who graciously agreed to talk to us about her 2017 book, Building Trust and Democracy, Transitional Justice in Post-Communist Countries, an Oxford University Press publication. Thank you, Dr. Horn, and hope we'll talk again soon. Goodbye. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure.